This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. Welcome to Decolonize Your Destiny podcast. I'm your host, Ingrid LaFleur. Today, we are talking about decolonizing the economy with our guest, Nate Talbot. Nate Talbot is a colleague and friend of mine. Uh, We actually work together on several projects, and we are going to be talking about one in particular in just a moment. Uh, Nate Talbot is the Executive Director of Detroit Blockchain Center and VP of North American Operations and Information Systems for IABTT, a professional development training institution specialized with developing nations. He consults on blockchain DLS integration for businesses and government agencies. Welcome, Nate. Welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm so glad that you're here. So I think we're going to start from the beginning because everybody I'm sure is like, blockchain what? (laughs) So could you please explain what is blockchain technology? All right. Um, The short layman's version is it is a ledger of information that you don't need to have a trusted party in. So traditionally in systems, um, whether it's finance or contract, whenever two parties have an agreement, um, how do you validate that agreement? And it's either the two parties have to trust each other sort of blindly or they use a third-party institution. So like in finance, that would be like a banking system. Or um, for contracts, a lot of times you use the legal system to, for enforcement and things. And blockchain sort of eliminates that middleman uh, necessity because it's math, right? And so two people can, or two parties can, transact with one another, whether you're talking about financial or just an agreement, and they don't have to worry about enforcement because the code takes care of that for you, right? Um what do you mean by that exactly? The code takes care of that. Um, it's like anything you've used, any software you use. You know, you if you're on a website, you click a button, you expect the site to go to a different page. And how does it do that? There's not a person inputting and watching what you're doing. It's a series of code that developers make, and you trust that when you click the button, the code will do what it's supposed to do and execute. And it's really what... Uh, it's really all blockchain is, except it uses highly advanced code, cryptographic code, the same type of technology. When you go to your banking site, and you see the little green lock, the HTTPS. Um, it's the same kind of cryptographic, which is where crypto comes from, um, information. But, you know, uh, 
the newest way I've been sort of presenting and I think the easiest way to understand it, you know, you have a lot of new technologies coming out from artificial intelligence to the Internet of Things, um, and you have blockchain. And how I pose it is artificial intelligence is how the Internet thinks. Internet of Things is how the Internet communicates. And blockchain is how the Internet transacts. And the three together is sort of where you get this new future that we all look at. Yeah. Yeah. And so what does blockchain technology have to do with cryptocurrency? Well, blockchain is the structure that cryptocurrencies are built off of. Uh, again, it's a cryptocurrency is just a currency um, that uses cryptographic functions, right? So cryptocurrencies. When you're dealing especially with finance, though, it's very important. It's easy to keep a ledger. You know, two friends can keep sort of a channel. When you're playing poker, right, and you put money on the table, or if you're just playing for points, you're keeping a ledger. Who's, who's got what score? But how do you know the person keeping score isn't cheating, especially if they're playing as well? Um, and you don't. You have to trust them or, again, use a third party to sort of oversee or keep the score. So what blockchain allows you to do with any kind of transaction is it sort of keeps, it allows a group of people, um, depending on the chain, something like a Bitcoin or Ethereum, the popular cryptocurrencies that were first sort of came to light, um, they're permissionless, which means anybody gets to play, right? You can just walk in as long as you have a computer that can hold, has a, the, the appropriate amount of storage and uh, computational power. You can come in, join the network, nobody screens you, nobody no applications, and and you play, and you keep scoring your computer, participates, it downloads a history. Many people are familiar. Well, I don't know if many people are familiar anymore. I'm sort of old and dated, but... Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the peer-to-peer file sharing, how people used to download movies and music before Netflix and um, Spotify were the go-to sources. People had to use a peer-to-peer network, which just means if I had a song on my computer, I could allow other people to download pieces of that file from my computer. And this works the same way. Um, A decentralized blockchain like Bitcoin, it's a piece of that ledger is in everybody's computer, and it goes all the way back to the very first um, part of the blockchain. So when you join in, you download the entire thing all the way back from 2009. And then when somebody new joins in, they'll download it from you, and from several other people, and that's sort of how it's trustless, right? Because there's a wide network of people who don't really know each other. Um, because it's permissionless, anybody can join in. And so when you join it, you can trust it because even if I tried to cheat, the hundreds of other people who you're downloading the ledger from would notice that change I tried to make and would reject that, those transactions or reject the ledger. And so, therefore, it's sort of a self-verifying, self-checking system. You know what I find interesting about uh, blockchain technology and cryptocurrency is uh, some of the philosophies behind it or what kind of inspired its creation, in a way. Um, And I know that's kind of a jump because Satoshi Nakamoto um, is the creator of Bitcoin, the first um, cryptocurrency blockchain. Um, and uh, we don't know if Satoshi Nakamoto 
It's a group of people. We don't know if it's a man, woman. We don't know where they're from. They're literally like God at this point. Um, but uh, on the when when it was launched, when Bitcoin was launched, they had an article about the bank's bail, the bailout in Britain. Though I think. I don't think it was, was it in the US? It was the US. It was the US, but I think it was like a British article. It was like really interesting. Oh, the, uh, an article about it? Yeah, it okay. was about the <laughs> the bailout. And um, anyways, so it, I thought that, you know, that is a, a piece that I think will help people kind of bring that together, that it was kind of a, this response, um, a heavy response to um, what we all know, how we're just basically hmm, completely and utterly disadvantaged and oppressed within these economic systems. And the bank bailout is like a great example of how we don't have that control. Even if we don't agree with the actions, um, they're not necessarily going to be penalized, right? Um, in fact, so many execs left with like all kinds of money and while people were losing their homes mm-hmm. um, and continuously, and I, you know, they say that we've bounced back, but a lot of people feel like they haven't, right? And if you look around Detroit, we've definitely been devastated. Um, you yeah. wanted to say something? Um, no, I'm, I, I agree absolutely with you. I was actually just having a conversation with somebody earlier today. Um <clears throat> When you have these conversations, especially around blockchain now, um, people sort of tend to forget when Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the original white paper, um, what makes Bitcoin sort of a a very different um, system than any of the other cryptocurrencies or blockchain technologies that followed was it was purely incentiveless, mm. right? Um, of course... You know, he could have, or they, whoever, Satoshi could have mined Bitcoin with the hopes that it would be worth something one day. But when he did it and put all that effort in, it was worth zero. He didn't sell it. He didn't pitch it. He didn't advertise it. He just sort of connected with a few people in a chat room um, with the cypherpunks and was like, here's this thing I did. You guys should join it. All right? Um, and they forget the the, he did... This was made in response to the 2008 recession. And the point of it was we really need have this dependence on institutional um, banking and institutions, period. And I think one of the geniuses of what he was doing was div- we've come to a time in technology where how we got here. We, we needed institutions, right? When you're trading gold or cash or anything, there's only so much you can carry on a person, right? Um, gold was never this huge day-to-day peer spending service because the amount of gold you'd have to carry, you were going to get robbed or you're going to break your back, right? But, but that's what held the value. Everybody agreed this is what was valuable. So you had to have some gold. Where do you keep it? Keep it in your house, somebody's going to break into the house. You keep it on you, they're going to break you. And so, you know, somebody was uh, um, creative and was like, hey, I'll build a big box with a lock on it, and you all can keep your gold here, and I'll give you just this little receipts, right, that says you have this gold, right? And this is where, where the money system sort of built from, and we needed that. We needed those institutions. 
but because he who controls the finance controls the world, right? And we've gotten to a point where I'm not anti-institutional. You know, I still think there's a good need for multiple institutions, but I don't think we need them at the level they're at now Um, because people control it and people make errors. And 2008 happened strictly because people got greedy and people made errors and careless errors at that. Um, This technology allows you to get rid of that layer, right? I mean, are there errors or was that intentional? And I think that that's the thing is that there's too much control um, for a group of people to be able to intentionally, because so many people betted, I mean, invested in the recession, if that makes sense. They made so much money from it because they knew what was happening. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's greed, but greed makes you overlook. And of course, there were some people who knew exactly what was happening and they were greedy and it, and it was very uh, purposeful. But there's supposed to be safeguards in place. And this is where I say the errors come in. This is where the institutions mm-hmm. are supposed to work for the people, right? We're supposed to trust the institutions. And that's where I say the institutions made errors. I don't think most of the... I, I'm not talking about Bank of America as an institution, but more of like the Fed mm-hmm. and, you know, SECs and mm-hmm. all, all of the mm-hmm. institutions we have to oversee these private corporations to make sure people don't get burned. They made these errors thinking, not realizing how incentive models work. The reason 2008 happened was because, you sort of said it, people shorted the market. They bet, they bet against people. They bet people would uh, default on their loans. And so they were going to profit off of that. And now you have an incentive model for people to fail. right? And when what's failing is the financial system, and again... He who runs the financial system runs the world, and you're betting that the financial system will collapse. That's the wrong incentive, right? And so people made an error not seeing that, thinking it's going to be fine. And, you know, we haven't really learned anything. We're almost right back where we started. All of those housing schemes that got us into this in the first, you know, 2008 in the first place are right back in effect. They're doing the same thing, except now it's not just housing, right? There's housing. Wall Street, all of the markets are at these tips, and they've been um, artificially sustained, and the markets are cyclical. They need to reset, and we've been stopping that. Right, and then on top of all of that, if you are uh, black or a person of color, it might be very difficult for you to get loans. Um, You're still dealing with redlining. And so on top of all of the these kind of larger, you know, kind of ways of being very predatory, um, especially poor people and the middle class, um, I think then you have institutionalized racism Absolutely. that we have to deal with as well. Giving a really good case of why blockchain technology and cryptocurrency exists, because now we can eliminate all of that. Well, correct. That's, and that was sort of the point. I went off on a tangent, but that's sort of the point of it. It was created not for, not even for Americans as we are, right? It, even in the most hard hit areas here, the worst of the worst are sort of better off than the medium to best in Dominican Republic and Venezuela and almost any place Africa, almost any place South America. 
Eastern Europe, many parts of Asia, you know, the, the westernized world, you know, we don't see the value in what it was originally created for because we have even our crappy access to finance. So um, the economically disadvantaged here has to use, they can't go to a bank. So they go to payday advance, which is, you know, legalized predatory lending. Um, but they have access to payday advance. There's places, many places, most places in the world that don't even have access to that. They can't get an advance on future work. They're just stuck with yeah, nothing. So and this is what this is what Bitcoin was made for. Um, if people are like big into uh, crypto Twitter or in a crypto scene, they'll know Pomp. And one of the things he's pointed out, uh, Anthony Pompliano, um, he's an investor. He's here. But a good point he makes is Bitcoin is the first uncorrelated asset the world has ever seen. Everything was always dependent on a nation, a corporation, an institution. Um, you know, they set the interest rates. They decide how money is valued. Um, Bitcoin is uncorrelated. It doesn't matter if a nation fails because it's global. It's built on a decentralized network that's not um, necessarily ba- doesn't need to be based in one place. If America hits a recession and if enough funds, enough people invested into Bitcoin as their store of value, they're not affected necessarily by the U.S. failures or by Bank of America's or J.P. Morgan's failures or if Facebook gets everybody to do their new cryptocurrency, Facebook's, um, you know, your value is lying in Facebook. But with Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency that's, you know, uh, reasonably decentralized, um, it's uncorrelated. Yeah, it's... It's as if Bitcoin is like our first global currency. It's, it is, well, it's not because you had gold, right? And you could, but it's equatable to the gold market. The way I used to um, view it was when there was a wild west frontier mm-hmm. globally and land to be explored, um, you could find gold. You could have nothing if you were willing to put in the time and the resources, buying a pickaxe, going out. Mm-hmm. someplace unexplored you could mine gold find gold and have the gold mm-hmm. it was yours um the same with bitcoin if you have the resources to have a computer that can do the basic computation and um access to electricity and in it in mostly internet even though it's not internet dependent um you can mine bitcoin Right? Nobody's stopping you in either case. The difference is, and what makes Bitcoin a true revolution, is um, what many people look at as a weakness. It's not, it's not, you can't touch it. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a holdup with gold. To me, that's a, that's a benefit of Bitcoin because, like I said, the reason we needed institutions in the first place when it came to money is who's going to carry around all that gold? If I'm in America and I have tons of gold i'm i'm a multi-billionaire because of my value in gold and for whatever reason the state turns on me and we know although there are rare cases there are cases the state turns on you and you're an innocent person martin luther king was the state turned on martin luther king he didn't do anything a foul right um and he had gold and he wanted to leave america he could leave he could sneak out he's not going to sneak out with 30 tons of gold 
<laughs> or 30 pounds of gold because they're going to stop him at every point of entry. He could have left with Bitcoin. Nobody can, they don't know, right? Um, so that's, a, that's definitely a, a pure asset of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency, you know. Um, I have a quick question mm-hmm. about, um, since you mentioned a little bit of criminal activity, Bitcoin cryptocurrency is associated with criminal activity. Um, I try my best to explain to people that even, you know, the USD is used for criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really shouldn't be too hard on it. But I, I guess people are afraid of the fact that you can be anonymous and hold all this crypto. Um, you can do transactions without it being really traced if you want to, especially if you use certain blockchains. Um, so what do you say to that? Um, criminals are going to criminal. Right, uh, they're going to use anything they can use. Um, there's not one method invented ever that a scam artist hasn't figured out how to exploit in their benefit. Um, now, Bitcoin specifically as a use case of why crypto is horrible, I think only people who use that argument are people who are not familiar with law enforcement at all because. Federal agencies love Bitcoin. They prefer you to use Bitcoin because, and I'm like 80% of statistics, I'm about to make this statistic up as well, but I would bank something around the area of 90% of criminals don't criminal very well. And the, the feds can use that. Bitcoin is not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. And if you are wise enough to use it correctly you can stay anonymous but by nature it's not anonymous and they've tracked down dozens if not hundreds of criminals because they use bitcoin criminals they couldn't access when they used the u.s dollar or the euro or the franc or whatever currency um they couldn't track them because that is much more anonymous it just has that one default factor of you have to hold the cash. How do I get the cash from point A to point B? But once you figure that problem out, there's no tracking that. Um, Bitcoin is absolutely there. So on Bitcoin specific um, or pseudonymous um, currencies, yeah, there is no criminal use case. Yes, criminals use it because it's censorship resistant. It's hard to shut down, right? Um, But... If you're not careful, it's easy to track. Um, especially because it's immutable. Especially because it's immutable. And then the second half to that is you have other privacy coins, which Bitcoin is trying to work its way towards, but you have other coins where anon- um, anim- anonymity is built in by design, where it's truly anonymous. But because criminals may use it is the worst case scenario. So in this country... We have um, a constitutional right that our forefathers were geniuses enough to put in of unreasonable search and seizures are illegal, correct? Um, now, what many people don't know about that is that was a highly contested amendment because they're like, but if you got nothing to hide, why does it matter? Just let us come check it out. But it's the principalities behind it, right? And then 
another thing most people don't know is that thing that keeps your bank transactions and your PayPal transactions and your your email transactions safe is that little green lock, that HTTPS, your SSL certificate. Um, it was just in the 90s where most world governments wanted to make that illegal. Why do you need to send encrypted messages over the internet unless you're hiding something illegal? And the cypherpunks, the same ones who made Bitcoin popular, the first group of people who really started using it, um, they fought that. Like, because the same reason we needed the, uh, the Fourth Amendment. Right? It doesn't matter. Yes, some people may send uh, secret messages that we all want the government to know about, but most people probably won't. And that's what turned out. Most people who use encryption today do not send illegal transactions unless you consider entering into your bank account online a, a legal communication, right? Um, so it's a false narrative. You know, it's that scare tactic. Criminals use it, so you should be afraid too. And But at the same time, we're going to go develop our own crypto. <laughs> well, right. Well, I this, mean, is, this is uh, a, a lot of people, I've always been, people who've known me for years are very surprised in my stance now with blockchain technology because I'm a very anti-conspiracy theorist part. Um, we all know conspiracy theories happen, but the reason conspiracy theories have a bad rap is because almost all of them are just imaginary, right? Which makes it so much harder to identify the true conspiracies, yeah. right? Um, and so I've always That's took that stance. What's that? Yeah. That's intentional. <laughs> well, I, and that was always my argument. Pre-Bitcoin days, that was my argument. You know, it's if most people I interact with, I consider fairly smart, you know, if not highly intelligent. And I'm like, if you built the system and you knew you had a secret to hide, would you A, just try to hide the secret? Or would you fill the market with tons of secrets so nobody could pick out which one? And if they did figure yours out, you know, that, so you're falling for the false narratives, right? Fake news. Um, yeah, so I, I forget where the point we were heading towards, but yes, I, I feel that way 100%. Awesome. Yeah, so I want to pivot a little bit because a, one of the main reasons that I am working at and co-founding a company, a blockchain company, mm-hmm. um, it's because of my conversation with our CEO, Rob Konstorf, mm-hmm. who you know, uh, who sat me down and talked to me about Dan Larimore, who is the creator of the EOS blockchain, um, the EOSIO software. Right. And uh, he basically has been focused on developing and creating nonviolent systems of government and economy. So um, so EOS is a little, uh, I don't want to say controversial, but it's, it, it's got a little, little shine to it because of its, <laughs> because of the governance model. And I love this experimentation that's happening in the blockchain um, technology space. It's like, well, now that we have this tech, um, what can we do? So Ethereum was like, well, let's try and create these smart contracts and figure that out. 
Um, and so now everybody is excited and using smart contracts in all kinds of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, divorce, marriage, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but just also um, making sure that you can have this peer-to-peer, as you said, uh, transaction and, and this automated contract can, can exist, and that's really great. And so EOS is, is really, um, besides being, you know, having the fastest throughput, uh, it is really tackling government and how we govern uh, an economic system. Uh, and so on, on this global but kind of smaller scale, of course, than like a federal government. We're really playing with um, ways in which um, we have all token holders have a voice and say in how um, EOS grows and changes and moves around. Uh, and I find that to be really fascinating. Mm-hmm. There's, um, I use the, the U.S. governance model as an example of sort of what you're talking about, what's, what's being built with uh, blockchain systems, which is, yes, we have a federal system. And as much as it seems people want that to shift, that federal system is based off of um, currently 50 individual um, sovereign units who have agreed contractually, constitutionally, to work together for this one federated um, institution. And each of those 50 units are made up of multiple county units, which are made up of multiple city and municipality units, right? Um, So it's, at the end of the day, many many Western governments have the similar structure where it's really a local economy and ecosystem and governance structure that participate to make up a larger county, that make up a larger state, that make up a larger federation. That's how the U.S. works. Is how the uh, European Union works. Um, and it's the exact same thing as what you're talking about and what people are building on the blockchain with these um, communities there where individuals, like, like an EOS network, um, individuals have a vote and a say how they want that network to run, and they're individuals. And they might, as individuals, decide this is sort of how we want this structure to run. And then that structure can move on. And as it grows out or maybe becomes even part of a larger network, that network would have a a unit, right, that its individual members decide we want to be like this. And enough of those units, so your bigger unit moves forward. It's really the exact same thing we've been using forever. Like I said, we needed institutions. Government is just an institution. Um, A republic... A democratic republic like the U.S. is just a governmental institution. And we may need it, but how we can operate these institutions has changed dramatically. And we can also start governing now on the blockchain. And that leads to DAX. And DAOs. DAX and DAOs. (laughs) So those are decentralized autonomous communities and Mm -hmm. decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, And then... I think there's a whole bunch of decentralized autonomous other kinds of corporations or (laughs) there's like all kinds of levels. You can go into the naming game, but it's all the same thing at its, at its core focus of what it tries to do, which just approaches it slightly different, but yeah. 
It feels like what you just described with the states is as if the states should become Winnebago Dak. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what they are. <clears throat> they, they, they absolutely are. And so if you're making an argument, if I'm going to make an argument for the EOS blockchain, right, as a governmental structure, right, um, that, well, that gets adopted by a governmental structure. And the, the argument would be, we don't want to change the structure. We want to change the accountability. Okay. Um, right now, and I'm going to keep things local because it's, it really has more impact on people's lives. Um, but your city council, your city USA, they get to, you elect them, right? Um, and it's a direct election, unlike the president where you, your vote sort of more like a recommendation, like your city council, you're really voting for them. Um, and you, you, you pick your seven, nine, however many members are on your, your, your city council, and they go and they make decisions on your behalf. We trust that they're going to make good decisions on our behalf, but we don't know what decisions they're going to make on our behalf. We don't know what contractors are going to give them kickbacks, we don't know what corporations are going to give them funds to help them do whatever. We don't know what private uh, incentives they have individually to benefit themselves at the, the cost of the people they represent. We have no idea, right? They have public meetings, but those aren't the only time they meet. It's not illegal for a city council to get together and have to have city, um, the residents there, right? So imagine now that there was a way to do transparency with that. Imagine you might still have city council members, but every time they voted on an issue, no vote could come through unless they did it on a public blockchain, right? And there's ways to make these blockchains where you it can go everywhere from totally um, um, transparent, we know exactly who voted for what, to... Systems that are semi-transparent. We know that this one voted this way. We just don't know exactly who. But we, the point is now we can see it. And because it's a, especially a public blockchain um, that anybody can see and access, we can see what they're doing. So if everyone had to use an EOS token and say to vote, and that's on the city council or in your legislature, now you know. And now that you know, you can verify when it comes time to reelect. Because now I know your voting record. I'm not just hearing the three things you keep telling me you voted for that changed my life in such great ways. You know what I mean? Yeah, EOSDAC.io. That's a really great example of what a DAC looks like. And um, you can go pretty far and you can see how people are electing. Um, uh, I think, I don't know how many, but it's like a group, like a council mm -hmm. uh, almost every week. And it changes out, and you have your own profile, and you can see what things are up for, for vote, and there is a compensation for those who've decided to run, and, and um, they are actually serving the DAC, meaning administratively. They, they may you know be paid from the DAC. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, uh, certain DACs will accept worker proposals, or I guess it's the same thing as like a a granting system mm -hmm. um, where the inflation from the token, um, you can just put that aside, create this honeypot, and people can, um, and 
you know, kind of vie for that and the DAC votes on who gets the, you know, the funds. It's a really fascinating um, thing. And it, it, I think it sounds a little more intimidating than it actually is. It just really just organizes a group of people with a shared vision. Quite honestly, it just makes things more efficient. Correct. It's, it's exactly, it's exactly what we have now in, like I said, in politics, if you're part of a government structure, um, I mean, Detroit Blockchain Center is a nonprofit. We're a member rent organization who's one of our uh, short-term goals is to move over to a decentralized organization system. So our members have a direct say um, in everything on how the, the organization runs. It's, it's exactly what people are used to doing now, except it can be very transparent if, if that's what we want. Right, and and you can have a direct say, or you can be complacent. I mean, a lot of people just want to live their lives. There's, there's so many things that go on in people's lives, especially um, the economically disadvantaged, which which includes everyone from the the the, the falsely labeled middle class on down. Right? Um, they really just like I want to get money so I can feed my family, provide a basic life that's worth living and, and and be good. And so what they do a lot of times is they proxy their vote, right? They proxy it, but most people proxy it by just not participating at all. Um, what the blockchain allows you to do is take this value and take this vote. Maybe you don't want to vote because you don't want to pay attention to the issues because there's more important things to you, like spending time with your kids than following what every single move of city council will do. But you know your neighbor's really good at that and you trust their opinion. You can proxy your vote over to them, and your neighbor can make decisions on your behalf because you trust them, and they're incentivized to keep that because you can incentivize your neighbor to make good decisions so you don't take that away from them, and they might make, like you were talking about, that financial model. Um, so it's, it's just a better way to really do what we do now. Right. It's a, so DACs are essentially digital co-ops yeah. is the yeah. way I explain it. That's perfect. And, uh, and so we are, Nate and I, uh, we are just two of a, a, a larger group of us who are creating a DAC in Detroit. And the project's called DAC Detroit. Do you want to introduce it? Um, sure. <laughs> so it's everything we've just talked about, right? It's a way for a group of either geolocated peoples, neighbors in a community, to um, do commerce, or you could also set it to be a value-based proposition. Maybe you're not directly neighbors, but you have the same set of um, values, and you build a system that's aligned that way. Um, I think the real point, though, before you even get into that, for people to realize is that for you, for anybody to have what I think every human just wants for their level of base happiness, which is, you know, shelter, um, food, and, you know, feel like they're providing for their family, um, you need a level of wealth, right? And that's an undervalued word because people don't really understand what wealth is. And I don't mean you have to be wealthy, you don't have to be a millionaire or a billionaire, but for your society, you have to make you have to earn enough to provide 
and have something left over so it's not just your very, very basic needs. And many people don't even meet those very basic needs, right? Um, so how do you have wealth, especially within a community? Well, it's by spending in a community. If you look at the wealthiest places really in the world, but to keep it on local, if you look at a city that's very wealthy, like for this area, you take an area like the Gross Point or Livonia or the you know these sort of outer suburbs of Detroit, <clears throat> they're considered wealthy. Um, Oakland County, it's like the second wealthiest county in the country repeatedly. Well, how, how do they get that? Well, it's because they take the money and the things they have of value and they keep it within their community for an extended period of time. And I don't, I don't know the numbers offhand, so uh, I encourage everybody to go and fact check this, but it's roughly correct. You take a community like Livonia and you, you, tra- you track a dollar. That dollar might spend someplace between a day and a week in Livonia before it leaves Livonia. Then you come into the city of Detroit and track a dollar. Let's say it left Livonia after three days of being there and came to Detroit. It's here for something like two minutes, if that, before it's gone. We can't hold money. If you can't hold money or things of wealth, you can't have wealth, right? And so the question becomes, how do you incentivize wealth, and that sort of leads into the idea of the Detroit that we're talking about. It, it's it's a way to, as we've already explained, you know, with what a DAC is and why cryptocurrencies and why, um, especially open permissionless censorship resistant blockchains are because all blockchains aren't created equal. Um, <laughs> but that's why those blockchains are essential in this because it. We have a new means without needing a institution to trust where as a community, geolocated or value-based or both, we can set a rule of how we want our community to be and we can incentivize um, wealth to stay in the community even longer. Yeah, and wealth creation, I, I think... In addition to money, wealth also means just access to resources as well, right? And so in Detroit, right now we're facing 40% of Detroiters not being able to access internet or high-speed internet. Um, and or, the, or internet. Or internet, period. Yes. Uh, and uh, the reason for that is because the internet providers look at the credit score of the entire area uh, and determine if they even want, if it's valuable enough for them to go in and set up any internet service. And when they do, oftentimes it's so slow and expensive that a lot of people just kind of opt out or won't use it as much. Or I mean, it's just the functionality of it. And so that means that our kids... Um, because we talk about the digital divide often, that means our children, when they go to someone like our, our colleague, Kennard Hagenhall, who is um, mm-hmm. teaching youth uh, coding, he would say that it's very difficult because they would go home and they couldn't practice. So by the time they saw him again, 
they might have to almost start at um, square All one. Over out. Again. Yep. And uh, so, if we really want our youth, especially our youth of color who are already kind of behind the eight ball, you know, when Bitcoin was doing well, all of a sudden you hear about these 12 year olds and 13 year olds who are becoming millionaires, right? Um, or who had started at that age and, and, and were becoming millionaires. And it's because they, they had access to the internet. They had, they could just sit and explore and right. learn and go on um, these chats and boards and, and read and, and, and be exposed. And our, and our youth of color don't have that level of access. So the divide is just growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So Detroit is trying to kind of start there. It's like our starting point mm-hmm. um, with making sure that people have internet access by um, uh, incentivizing people to create um, a, a mesh network within their neighborhood. And for those of you who don't know what a mesh network is, it's basically having um, a satellite on a house and they bounce a signal to a house about a block away and then people in that small area um, will have access to uh, internet. And so the Equitable Internet Initiative has been working in um, five neighborhoods and then they moved into Highland Park, which is a city within Detroit, to kind of set that up. And so that looks like maybe 50 houses in one neighborhood, like North End. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now almost the entire neighborhood of North End is covered. Um, they, there's, of course, still more work to do, but not that much. I think they're almost done with, with North End. So that's the kind of work that we want to support with our project, Detroit. That is all correct. <laughs> um, it, it And it goes beyond just... Um, like access for youth, um, it's access for all people. Um, you know, my my youngest um, child just graduated high school. Um, Who is brilliant, by the way? Well, he is. Yes, he is. Um, all of my children, as they were getting to that working age, I remember when I was growing up. You know, around fourteen, fifteen, I could start looking for work and getting a job and. It just required I'd go to the local store or pizza shop or fast food restaurant, whatever. Say, hey, I'm looking for work. Y'all hiring? And they'll either say, sure, or they'll hand you a piece of paper and say, fill that out, and, you know, we can give you a call. Today, what our, anybody who's looking for a job receives instead is go online. Well, what if I don't have an online? And the bigger network places like a Myers or Walmart, they'll have the online access right there. Um, but then again, if like in the city of Detroit, if you live on Mac and Bewick, there's not a Walmart right there, but you still need to go online. I mean, local places are telling you go online. How do I get online if I don't have internet? And we are an internet desert, right? And then beyond that, so, so finding a job, you can't do it if you don't have access to internet. Um, People with a job, a lot of times, um, you have to do a training. And, you know, I think it was Seattle who just got in trouble for this, but I think every city has it. The city itself doesn't do it, but the uh, corporations within them do. And they're basically, you know, um, robbing people of hours. They're, they're making them work without getting paid, right? And so you've experienced this, if, especially if you work hourly, and they're like, all right, we just need you to do this training. So you can do it when you're not working, you can go home, whatever, over the next couple of days, just go online and do that training. Well, A, that means you're working and you're working for free. And B, you have to go online and do a training. 
What do you do if you don't have an online, right? Um, we're in the age of Amazon, right? Uh, what do you do if, especially if you're handicapped, um, disabled, or in a, without access to certain services, like people who live in food deserts without any good, good providers, or like I said, if, if you're in any neighborhood, Detroit, just about, where do you go if you needed some Walmart or, or any kind of goods because the Walmarts, everybody closed all the local businesses that you used to be able to walk to. So you have to order from Amazon. How do you do that if you don't have internet, right? And people say, well, use your phone, but a lot of people don't know you have these phone data, you know, caps, even the Obama phones. You know, it's not free, high-speed, everything for everybody. Um, so there's so much need for a need for internet access. It's almost to the point where it, it needs to be a utility, which is why a lot of cities look at, are starting to look at, um, or communities at least are starting to look at, how do we provide internet for all? And a mesh network is a great way to do that. Um, and then the the only difference besides, between what we're building and what there are mesh networks all over the country um, that are happening is a lot of them are dependent on um, um, donors, somebody to give money to sustain the network, right? We still have to get the internet piped in to the neighborhoods that costs, right? Um, you, you need equipment that costs. Uh, a service that, you know, these companies provide, even though it's, mostly provided poorly is customer service what happens when your network isn't working you call them and they have a tech that helps you out or can come out and set you up so if you're going to do this in the community you know these these things cost and a weakness of um, a purely altruistic mesh network where everyone's just doing it for the love is who pays the cost right and that can be set up this is that without blockchains, without anything, you can set that up, but now you have an accounting thing. And for something that's usually a nonprofit situation that's starting this, you know, you're at the mercy, once again, of people giving you money. What happens when they get tired of giving you money? You know? Um, and so a benefit of doing what we're we're trying what we are building is an incentivized mesh network and that word incentivized is the key difference between us and many of the other mesh networks out there which is if if you want internet um but for whatever reason because you can't afford it or it's not available or whatever the the dozen or so reasons why there's many people without internet these days um you can you can get it. We can provide it to you, and we can provide it to you at a fraction of the cost you would pay any of the big carriers, right? And then, if that's all you want, that's fine. If you still can't afford it, um, using this the, uh, a mesh network system, we can provide you certain access where all you have to do is sort of log into the network, like when you go to like a, a Starbucks or you know a, even I think McDonald's now, you can go there and hop on their internet. You just gotta sometimes give them. Email or something, right? Um, so you can still get it. But if it's not just that, but you're also a little bit more entrepreneurial or you just want to be helpful to people in your neighborhood, not only can you receive the internet, like you said, you just put this little antenna um, 
like up on the roof or someplace where it's open. And not only do you get the internet, you're helping your neighbors get the internet. And the payment structure, because it's based off of uh, blockchain, as we talked about, um, which means there's no trusted third parties, which means, you know, we didn't really get into smart contracts and things, but the code, you can just trust the code. If you trust math, if you trust two plus two is four, and you don't argue that, then you can trust the math, and you can verify it yourself, because it's open and public and permissionless, right? Um, you can get paid to help your neighbors. So because, um, Ingrid, because you're not just receiving the internet, you're helping me gain access to it, a piece of that payment I give for, for my usage goes to you. And I suppose there's scenarios where you can actually make this a, a viable business by providing neighborhoods, and this is sort of how businesses are supposed to work. You provide a service, you can benefit from that, right? So you could do that and probably make a decent income, but almost very few people will do that much because of the investment cost to do that. But for less than $150, not only can you receive internet, you can help your neighbor get on it, and you can probably make enough to break even. So what it would cost you to use the internet, you've just earned from helping your neighbors um, access the internet, which means effectively you have close to, if not absolutely, a zero cost for internet. Right? Uh, and so now affordability doesn't even become a problem, and there's no work. It's not like Uber, right? Which this isn't a dog Uber necessarily, or a, a ride-sharing service in general, um, but you have to put in time. And if you're doing that, you're trading your hours for income. With these networks, you don't have, the only time you put in is upfront to install the antenna or put up the or purchase the antenna. Once that's it, you just sit in your house. The system does the rest. That's the purpose of blockchain. It allows peer-to-peer. And so for nothing more than a little bit of a startup time investment, you, you can have free or drastically reduced on top of an already drastically reduced internet coverage. When I say drastically reduced, what most people don't realize, even incentivized or not incentivized, people's internet bills are going from like $70, $80, dollars a month to like $30, $40. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's great. Um, and it's exciting. And we are at the very, very beginning phases of this. Yes, um, and it's a really wonderful, uh, interesting, long road, um, but so worth it. And, it is. And, and, and I'm thankful that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants because organizations like EII and the mesh networks across the country and even what we're building, you know, um, to do some plugging, we're using, um, basing it off a software system called Althea, which is... Um, Based out of, I think the base is actually California, but they're West Coast um, primarily, but they've developed this core software that allows us to access the, the block, a blockchain system and not have to do much besides install the setup. Um, and so, although we're at the beginning, again, we're, it's not the absolute beginning, and that makes this path much easier to travel. Definitely. Definitely. So, uh, speaking of traveling, let's travel into the future. I want to know, right. <laughs> what are your future visions of uh, blockchain technology? 
Well, um, it's exactly like I said sort of earlier, which is there's three major, in my view, there's three major components that's going to take us into the the future that we all dream about, even if that dream is a nightmare to you, right? Which is Internet of Things, IoT, AI for artificial intelligence, or blockchain. Um, none of them singularly by themselves are what's going to change the world dramatically. It's that corporation of all three technologies because one is about thinking and you know how the internet thinks. One is about communicating and one is about transacting. And that's that's really what you need. Um and so my future vision is a, a world where those are really started to tie together and we see this into everyday life. Um uh, and people don't know what's what's doing it. You know, when it comes to blockchain technology, I don't know we've made it when I don't ever hear the word blockchain technology because it's the most irrelevant part of it all. We don't talk about, um, besides marketing, we don't need to know about 4G or what 4G is. We just know I can pick up my phone, dial, and it connects, right? You don't have to know about um, mobile phone architecture, you know, and, and and developing mobile apps, you just pick up, you just download the app and it works. And the same thing true with blockchain. It's just like, here's this thing, this, this feature that's going to make your life easier. And the only things worth supporting are things that are going to make the average person's life easier, right? And just know it works. And hey, I sort of get paid from it. And it's not just like dollars, like the U.S. economy is tanking, but this value I have because it's based on this non-correlated asset, right? It's, it's holding its value, so I'm not losing money in the recession. Because when, if anybody ever listens to uh, any kind of financial talk, they'll hear the term markets are, are cyclical. They work in cycles, right? Well, we felt the brunt force of a cycle in 2008, what people don't know is we've been in a 10-year bull run, which means the market prices keep going up and up and up and up. And every little dip, it's a little dip, and then it goes up and up. And we, we've most cycles only last, I believe, someplace like a good cycle would be like five to seven years. So we're going on to four years past where we should have had a correction. And the corrections hurt. Right, but they hurt little if it's done regularly. It only hurts a little, and then you elevate right. up higher. We were just going up and up. And the higher up it goes, just like real life, yes. the harder and further you fall. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is a perfect example to to not just put it on a world. Um, you know all these other uh, um, assets. The 2017 Bitcoin went through, and all crypto went through this bull market when Bitcoin price went up to twenty thousand. And at first it was sustainable because it was like from 1,000 to 4,000 took like nine, 10 months. And then from 4,000 to 10,000 took like another four or five months. But then 10,000 to 20,000, we were looking at something about, what was it, 12 days, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's, it's unsustainable. And the market price crashed. Now, it stayed higher than what it started. You know, it started at around $1,000 when the bull market started. It crashed to $3,000. So 
ultimately you benefited. But a lot of people, same thing happened with the dot-com bubble. A lot of people started getting interested at the top. Mm. Market crash. And now with all the world assets, they're, do- they're all simultaneously doing the same thing. Real estate market is at like a 10-year peak. The Wall, uh, Wall Street and stock market is at like a 10-year peak. You know, every asset imaginable um, that, w- that we've been using for generations is at an all-time peak, and they're all ready for a correction. And if you thought 2008 was bad, only the real estate market crashed in 2008. Everybody felt it because that's how impactful some of these markets are, but it was the real estate market. That's what people were betting against. You know, everybody was getting a mortgage, and everybody defaulted at the same time. That crashed, and look what it did to all the other markets. Now, all of them are about to crash at some point at the exact same time. You thought 2008 was bad. So you're basically saying, hold up before you buy a house, let it crash, and then buy that house? <laughs> well, as a tip for, for building wealth, as an individual building wealth, yes, do not save. You save money, right? You put it in a very safe um low interest bearing market um something that you that probably won't tank or is insured against tanking or you can pull out without too many penalties but it's not going to make you rich right mm-hmm. um or stuff it under your mattress whatever but you don't buy now nobody buys google at $700 so the so they can sell it at $500 or $300. Right. You buy it at 300 and you wait till the market crashes. I learned this firsthand. You know, Detroit, an advantage of Detroit is historically we feel things first. Yes. The, wor- the world felt 2008 and 2008. That hit Detroit in like 2004, 2005. <laughs> so we had a little head run. And I remember watching, I think it was Ford stock drop to below a dollar. I think at the lowest point, was someplace in like the 30 to 60 cent range. And I was busy trying to do my own little thing. I wasn't um, financially literate. And so I had no savings to dump into it. I was like, man, I wish I could go buy even $1,000 of Ford stock, which now I don't know the exact price, but it's back up to like $30. So imagine the people who, if you only had $1,500 saved and you bought Ford stock at less than a buck, and now today it's like at $30, $40. You know what I mean? Imagine all these people, and I think people all over the least country know this now. Look at all the houses that were going for a hundred and twenty, hundred fifty thousand, and the market hit. People swooped them up for like twenty thousand dollars. There's houses in Detroit that went for like five thousand dollars, which means you could put another twenty five thousand into it, spent thirty, and today that house is worth seventy, eighty. You've doubled your money. You know, so yeah, save your money. The crash, uh, what's the, uh, I can't even think of his name now. Uh, blood in the streets. That's all, that's all you got to know. Blood in the streets. When everybody is panicking, you know you're ready because you're not. You have money and you buy. When everybody sells, you buy. When everybody's buying, I was about to buy a house in 2007. Mm. And you know what stopped me? Um, somebody I knew for years, multiple people I knew were doing it, but this one individual came up and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the real estate thing. I got houses. I can sell you a house. I'm like, you selling houses? I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. 
If you can sell a house, I ain't doing it. I'm something's something's wrong, <laughs> and I'm so glad I didn't because you know I would have tanked. Your intuition saved you. Yeah. So tell me, what's next with uh, Detroit Blockchain Center? All right. So the Mesh Network, yeah. Internet Mesh Network, and we're we're working hard to have within the next quarter or two next quarter or two have our uh, business resource center it's really important to pe- to us that um people interested in blockchain or another word for that is distributed words is distributed ledger technologies because it doesn't necessarily have to be a blockchain it's just one type of distributed ledger technology so anybody dealing with distributed ledger technologies even if you're not a developer, marketing, user experience, you just got a good business idea, anybody related, we want to have a business resource center for you. You can come in, we can plug you into this network of people. If you already have a network of people but you need funding, we can plug you in with people who are looking to fund you, all of that. And then um, one of the reasons we formed and what we're still working towards is a large-scale conference. So we're looking... And I can't make any official announcements on when it is, but coming up soon will be Detroit's first international blockchain conference, um, large scale. (laughs) Um, So those are our primary things outside of DAC Detroit and the mesh network that we're working with. Great. Um, So I ask every guest, All right. how do you decolonize every day? How do I personally do it every day? Personally, every day. I educate myself. Hmm. Um, I, I educate myself. I've the the key thing to learn. I, it took me forever to figure out what my talent was. Everybody has a talent, mm-hmm. right? And maybe it's you know making funny faces, or maybe it's dunking a basketball, or maybe it's a genius mathematician. My talent is my ability to pick up quickly on concepts, right? Um, sort of learn, which is why all of my career paths I've been a generalist um, because I, I can quickly understand all the different aspects of time together. Um, and once I realized that, once that ticked, learning just became like this. It was already a thing I did, but now it's even higher. And so I push that because even though I look at that, I can pick up sort of quick on things. Everybody can learn. It's learn different. Right, so maybe you learn by reading, maybe you learn by watching, maybe you learn by doing, maybe you learn by somebody kicking you in the back until you just do it. Right, but you can learn, and if as long as you learn something new, one thing new, a new word, a new concept, a new idea, you know, you don't know what you don't know. True. And the more you learn, the more ignorant you realize you are, which makes you want to learn more because it's like I don't want to be ignorant. Like, I don't know nothing about this. Blockchain did that for me. Like, how many things I didn't realize I knew, I didn't know. You know, I know how money works. I have no idea how money works, you know. So learn something new every day, and that's how I decolonize, because you can't decolonize. You can't set yourself free if you don't know you're a slave. And there you go. So. So, and last question. I'm a pleasure activist, as you know, Mm -hmm. and I like to ask everyone um, basically what gives you pleasure and how do you engage that pleasure? 
Enjoy. It's almost... It's almost the same thing. Learning. Learning. You know, I'm a I'm a nerd. <laughs> it's so, clear. <laughs> yeah. I I wake up when you lay in bed, you know, I I decoupled myself from social media since 2019, so about five, six years ago. Um gave it all up. And it just was a brain drain for me. I'm back on Twitter now just because this is where crypto happens. It's on Twitter. Um, But I wake up in the morning where most people scroll through Facebook or the feeds and see what everybody's doing or Instagram or Snapchat or wherever the kids use TikTok. Um, I like pull up a documentary or educational resource or something on game theory or I watch math videos that's what I wake up to. And then to put myself to sleep, I do the same thing. Then when I'm bored and, you know, uh, sitting around waiting for something, and I don't get on social media. I, don't, I, I uninstalled all games from my phone because of the distractions. And so now instead I'll look something up I didn't know about. You know what I mean? Um, I hate to be, because I like learning so much, I hate to be, when somebody asks me a question, not know the answer. And you'll never ask me a question where I don't know the answer twice. You might get me once, but I swear when you come back, not only will I know, I'll, I'll school you on it <laughs> because I'll go down the rabbit hole. And that's, it gives me pleasure because then I get to have conversations like these. I like to teach. I like to educate. Mm-hmm. Um, so you like to share the knowledge in what you're gaining, which is really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thank, thank you for and- allowing me to. Where can people find out more about Detroit Blockchain Center? They can go to DetroitBlockchainCenter.org. And I'd like to just reiterate, we are a membership-run organization. And while we do have a strong focus on anything we do ties back to the Metro Detroit area, we are not Metro Detroit-specific. We, we, we're talking with people and working on projects all over the world. Um, we just make sure things tie back to Detroit because of local economy situations. Um, and that applies to membership. So, you know, we have membership tiers that go from free on up. And, you know, you can come to the website and learn more, but we, we love to have members. We want the whole community to be involved in what we're doing. Yes, so please spread the word. And I would love to hear from you, audience members. Um, how do you decolonize Please share with me and email me at decolonizeyourdestiny at gmail.com. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, Nate. Thank you so much for having me, thinking I have enough knowledge to share. <laughs> and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ingrid LeFleur. Until next time. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and always listen on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Store, and Spotify. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city.